0: Hey, this is Michael Emery. Thanks for tuning in to Slow Baja. This podcast is powered by Tequila Fortaleza. Handmade in small batches and hands down my favorite tequila. You know, I've long said it. Ask your doctor if Baja's right for you. Well, you got to check out the adventures tab at SlowBaja.com. The Slow Baja is from February 23rd to March 1st. It's a slow roll from the beautifully rustic Rancho La Bajota to stunning San Ignacio and back up to sunny San Felipe. We're going to have a one full week to explore some of my favorite places and meet some of my favorite people. We're going to have two nights in San Ignacio and everybody's going to get to go whale watching. You know those gray whales in the San Ignacio Lagoon are noted for their curiosity and friendliness. So be prepared for them to get up close and check you out. And I'm proud to say I'm going to be doing a little giving back on this trip. My friend Matthew Schnitzer, the founder of Barbers for Baja, you know the great work they do sending kids to college. Well, he's on board, and we're excited to launch our new project delivering desperately needed baseball gear to teams and coaches up and down the peninsula. And we will make our first gear donations on the slow Baja. You know, it's not the longest or the largest or the most miles. It's the slowest and the best miles, and hopefully the most smiles. Okay, for more information, check out the Slow Baja at SlowBaja.com. Don't be afraid to ask questions. You can always reach me through the contact link at SlowBaja.com. And remember, the Slow Baja is open to 4x4 vehicles of any age. Got a two-wheel drive that you think you can make it? Well, let's talk. Once again, that's the Slow Baja, February 23rd through March 1st, 2024. Help me keep Baja slow on the Slow Baja. You know, I'm a minimalist when it comes to Baja travel, but the one thing I don't leave home without is a good old paper map. My favorite is the beautiful, and I mean beautiful, Baja Road and Recreation Atlas by Benchmark Maps. It's an oversized 72-page book. It's jammed with details. It brings the peninsula's rugged terrain into clear focus. Get yours at BenchmarkMaps.com. In fact, get two. One for your trip planning at home and one for your Baja rig. Hey, big news. Benchmark just released the second edition of the Baja Road and Recreation Atlas. They are always striving to improve these maps, and they've added a bunch of new features, a bunch of places of interest, including the Chenith Legacy Lodge. It wasn't on the first printing of the map. It's there now. It's awesome. You can see it right there in Persebu. Get your brand new second edition of the Baja Road and Recreation Atlas from benchmarkmaps.com. And while you're at benchmarkmaps.com, you got to check out all their other atlases. I think they're up to 17 now, including British Columbia. They've got folding maps. They've got digital maps. They've got giant wall maps. My favorite, and I've got it up on my wall right here at Slow Baja HQ, is the 30-inch by 46-inch Baja wall map. It's so great to just look at one thing and see the entire peninsula there. I love it. Benchmarkmaps.com. Slow Baja approved. Well, hello. My heaping dose of gratitude goes out to Max, Jeff, Bix, Zeke, Dan, and Bear. For one spectacular week, we were the Magnificent Seven. At least that's how I want to remember us. Anyways, these guys shipped three beautiful Land Rovers out from New England for the full Slow Baja experience. And I won't lie, we had a magnificent time. If you're interested in your own Slow Baja experience, I'd love to discuss creating a private guided tour just for you. Okay. Got other news that I'm super excited to share with you. We've teamed up with Barbers for Baja. Now you know them from the great work they do sending kids to college. Well, they're a legit 501c3 charity now, and we are stoked to announce our new project supplying teams and coaches in Baja with the baseball gear they desperately need to play ball. Now, you know, I've been lucky. I've got to watch my own son play baseball for 20 years now from T-ball all the way up to AAA, I've seen firsthand the life lessons, grit, determination, humility, and resilience that playing baseball can teach. Help us help the dedicated baseball coaches of Baja to keep kids on the field and out of trouble. To make a tax-deductible donation to our baseball program, please go to BarbersForBaja.org and make sure to write baseball in the donation notes. And stay tuned to Slow Baja for more on this exciting program, once again, to make a tax-deductible donation of support, go to BarbersForBaja.org and make sure to put baseball in the donation notes. Thank you. Today's show is with Slow Baja alum, David Keir. I think this is David's third trip to the show, and today he joins us to talk about the 50th anniversary of the Trans-Peninsular Highway. Now, it's hard to believe that prior to the completion of the highway at the end of 1973, to drive the length of Baja was a feat so rare and monumental that those who completed it felt compelled to write a book about the experience. Now, Keir began exploring Baja with his parents in the mid-60s, and in 1966, David's father took the challenge to drive to La Paz in their Jeep Wagoneer, sitting between his folks Right there on the front seat of the old Jeep, his copy of Gerhardt and Gulick's Baja Bible in his lap, young David was given the responsibility for navigating for the entire trip. He diligently watched the slowly turning odometer and took note of every passing kilometer marker. Well, they made it. They got all the way to La Paz, and as was the custom at the time, they put the truck on the ferry to Mazatlan and drove the paved highway back home to San Diego. Needless to say, David was hooked. That epic trip spurred a lifelong affinity for history, maps, off-road exploration, and a deep desire to help his fellow Baja traveler. To that end, in 1973, as a high schooler, David released his own guidebook to Baja and the still under construction Trans-Peninsular Highway. Since then, David's made countless trips to Baja. He was a consultant to the Benchmark Maps Baja Road and Recreation Atlas, and he writes a regular travel feature for the Baja Bound Insurance newsletter. His book, Baja, California, Land of Missions is in its 13th printing. Well, David's my go-to guy on every obscure road or route question, and without further ado, here's David Kier on the 50th anniversary of the Trans-Peninsular
1: Highway, today on Slow Baja. Uh, We want to eat the mic, as they say.
0: Eat the mic. Keep talking, David. We're
1: eating the mic here, looking at a bunch of books that date back to the early 1970s. And plus a map that was in one of the book, it came in three separate pieces, unfolded on the table here so we can quickly glance at how the new highway ran through the peninsula of Baja California when it was completed in December, or actually founded, uh, open. <laughs> it was, hmm, how do we say it, inaugurated on December 1st, 1973. The highway was actually physically completed in November of 1973.
0: Well, I think I got you dialed in, and that's a pretty good uh, way to start the show. So welcome, <laughs> David Kier. Use nice whatever
1: ha- you like out of that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice to have you back on Slow Baja, buddy. It's great uh, to be here. It's great to be here at your place, and we, um, we're we looking at a whole table full of great books. Your, your own book that you made as a high schooler, the, the oldest book on the table here is the Lower California Guidebook by uh, Peter Gerhard and uh, Howard Gulick. Um, Gerhard and Gulick, right? Gulek? Yeah. How do you pronounce that?
1: Gulick. 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 Yeah. yeah. They say <laughs> I don't know if it's, if it's Norwegian or not, but G and G for short. G and G. Well, <laughs> and
0: that was the the Bible, so to speak. The Baja
1: Bible. Many people called it that. Yeah. It yeah. Was I was a kid, but boy, I, I was admired by it. I just you could read it and see exactly where you were uh, as you drove down the old dirt roads of Baja, and if you looked at your odometer at a fork in the road. And you knew exactly where the next fork in a road was that you wanted to turn onto based on what the uh, guidebook would tell you.
0: Well, I think it was Malcolm Smith who uh, memorized this for his first run in 1967, memorized the book and, and gave it to J.N. Roberts and told him to memorize it, and he didn't. <laughs>
1: I Did he follow that, the rising moon that time and ended up on the coast of yeah, Baja? Yeah, he ended up going uh, <laughs> east-west or the west the wrong east, coast. Yeah, yeah, and then running out of fuel and what
0: have you. So, yeah. That, Great story. There you go. Hey, well, the reason I was interested in talking to you today on Slow Baja is um, 50th anniversary of the completion of this highway this year.
1: It's amazing how fast the years go by. It's, I'm, I'm stunned at uh, looking back at half a century from the time that, um, I was a 15-and-a-half-year-old kid uh, riding with my folks in our station wagon down the peninsula to go to Loretto for a fishing trip. And we had assumed by mid-1973 that the highway would be close to being completed, and we could easily drive a few, uh, few dozen uh, dirt road miles, uh, probably construction road miles. And uh, lo and behold... Uh, there was a lot more dirt miles uh back back then, and they did an amazing job at completing that section of the highway so quickly in just a few months in nineteen seventy
0: three Yeah, well, tee it up for me. um the road was built from south to north and and north to south, and they met in the middle.
1: right. There are two road crews basically, and each each section had several companies involved because it was a uh, just a wildly large project uh, for any company or country to build a highway through you know, what we know as the most rugged peninsula on earth. And uh, they did that final section, which was basically San Quintín on the north and San Ignacio on the south, all in 1973. Uh, pavement was to Santa Rosalia, going north from La Paz, uh, completed at about 1972, but Uh, The rest of the distance was probably the roughest part yet to go, and that was all done that finally last year. So we have um, uh, the crews from the north actually didn't move nearly as fast as the crews from the south. Uh, Why that is, I'm not sure, probably political, but basically the highway had originally ended uh, in the 50s and early 60s just north of Colinet, or about 86 miles south of Ensenada, and highway going north from La Paz ran about 100 miles before it became just a rough graded dirt road, washboardy graded dirt road. And all that 800 miles in between those two points was quite an adventure, and I was fortunate enough to uh, experience it when we drove it in 1966 in a Jeep Wagoneer. So flash forward to 1973, and the pavement uh, moved south from uh, Colonette, well, it was south from Colanet to San Cantin by the beginning of 73, and then from San Cantin to uh, a location uh, about 10 kilometers south of Catavina, at a place called San Ignacito is where the crews from the north met up with the crews coming north from the south. And there's a monument there. There was a nice brass plaque announcing the the uh, meeting of the two crews, kind of like the uh, golden spike on the railroad going across the United States. Unfortunately, that plaque was removed by someone. And so the owner of the cafe there across the street from the monument painted uh, his rendition of of what was on that plaque on the the, uh, monument. Unfortunately, he got the year wrong. He put 1972 at the bottom instead of 1973. But other than that, it pretty much says that this is where the crews met each other.
0: Not surprising that he got it wrong, and not surprising that David Keir knows the right answer. <laughs> if I ever need to get a date right or know the right answer, I go straight to the Keir. Well, your family has a uh, history driving, as you said, the the road before completion. And your father, bought, your father was a dentist, and he bought four-wheel drive vehicles because he loved Baja and he loved fishing. And so he would drive around a... In San Diego these days, everybody's driving a four wheel drive vehicle, but <laughs> in
1: those days he must have been a real outlier. Well, yeah, he just did whatever needed to be done to to have the result that he wanted. And he wanted to get to these fishing spots that his uh, one of his patients had told him about. And it turns out his patient was a former co worker of Howard Gulick of the Lower California Guidebook. And he would tell my dad about these great surfs fishing surf fishing places. And uh and he said, but you need to have a, a Jeep to get to them. And my dad said, well, I've got a wife and a little boy, and, you know, that would be too too uncomfortable riding a Jeep. And he said, oh, but no, 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 Jeep makes something called a Wagoneer. It's got air conditioning and a V8, and uh, you can uh, put all your camping gear in there. And so it uh, probably was the uh, next day my dad went out and bought a Jeep Wagoneer <laughs> once he learned about them. And uh, soon after that, we were taking trips to Baja.
0: Yeah, and you were the one sitting in the front seat, in between mom and dad, had the Lower California guidebook in your hand. Yep. And you were the, the trip navigator.
1: Yeah, that was a fun thing for me to do, maybe to keep me occupied. But they'd say, ask me to read what was coming up next. So I yeah, would look at that, and if there was a fork in a road to take, uh, my dad would tell me his odometer reading, and I got to do a little bit of math, knowing that you know, four point eight miles ahead there'd be another fork we'd have to turn on, or or whatever the case was. And additionally, it had a lot of history in there, too. Like, there's a mission up ahead. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I learned about the missions pretty early on. And
0: that became a lifelong fascination, didn't it,
1: David? It did. Well, it, you know, it, it kind of waned and came back again. And I did a high school paper on the California missions. And and I decided to do it. Well, Baja was California first. So we'll do it on the Baja California missions. And that was my high school paper. And I kind of, like, had missions in my mind much more solid after that. And then, of course, you, you're aware of my book I did in 2016, which is still in production. The uh, 13th printing was just made and was delivered uh, last week, actually.
0: Fantastic.
1: <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> Fabulous. That's amazing.
0: 13th printing. Um, so, David, you, you had said that uh, we had lunch earlier and we were talking about some of these details. You'd said that um, as the highway... Be- grew closer to completion your dad thought well i'm done with the four-wheel drive i just need to get a station wagon that's going to be much more comfortable extra gas tank air shocks and we'll go in style because the road's paved now
1: yeah well we knew it wasn't completed but we figured gee this late in the day this was uh, like summer vacation 1973 there wouldn't be that much of any rugged parts any parts that needed four-wheel drive and that his station wagon, with the modification of an extra fuel tank and the air shocks, could handle whatever dirt roads, probably were all graded, uh, that remained between point A and point B of the highway construction. But as it turned out, there was a lot more dirt roads uh, in that summer, and including many, many miles of the original uh, dirt road to La Paz, or what we call the Baja 1000 Road. And uh, that was a surprise to us, but... We made it through, and uh, uh, it's a great memory to have. And, of course, uh, I wrote my first book, if you want to call it a book, a uh, uh, handwritten guide called Baja on the trans Highway after that summer 1973 trip.
0: Yeah, I would i would categorize it as a booklet, but <laughs> you put an awful lot of work into it. And there's an awful lot of detail there.
1: Yeah, I can't help myself sometimes. I'm just a de- <laughs> detail-holic. And I said, well, you know... It's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. So everything's in there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so dive into that. Dive into that. You realized there was a gap in the amount of information that was coming in and the in the amount of information, the accuracy of the information, and the timing of the information, and you decided to fill that gap.
1: We No one knew, or no one publicized anyway, where the exact route of the highway, the new highway would be. And since it, I'd been on the old road with my folks when I was younger in 66, I was very interested as to the route of the new highway. Would it be on top of the old road? Would it be, you know, alongside of it? Uh, or would it be a completely different route? And so that was my big interest. And you know, between El Rosario and uh, really uh, Ciudad uh, Constitución or Ciudad Insurentes, that whole section is where the really new highway was very different from the old road and uh, in many areas. Sometimes it was right alongside and sometimes it was far away. So I was interested in that, so I recorded anything I could look and see that looked like it was from the old road. And from also just reading the Lower California guidebook over and over again, you know, knowing what Rancho was over that hill, and thinking I spotted it from the new highway as we drove along, I would could see like where we were in relation between old and new, and then recording the mileage at that point. So that's kind of what became my my road guide of uh, 1973,
0: pre satellite, pre <laughs> GPS, <laughs> pre internet, pre computers. Yeah. You were really trying to figure this out and try and get it, trying to get it absolutely as accurate as possible.
1: Yeah, that's just my thing—accuracy. <laughs> yeah, we all make mistakes, but you know, I, I try to have as few as possible. And uh, then if I see them and are identified, I like to make sure they're they're fixed. So, so
0: talk about that again in your your booklet that you made the um, Baja. And the Trans-Peninsular Highway by David Kieran. What? How old were you when you started on this? I was
1: 15. You
0: You're 15, okay. <laughs> and and your 1966 trip, how old were you when you did, took that one?
1: Uh, I was a, like around eight. I okay.
0: Think. Yeah. So how, how did your parents deal with you trying to, you know, c- Gather this information and fact-check this information. And what does uh, what does Benchmark say? You're trying field-checked for accuracy. (laughs) You were you were trying striving. Yeah, they striving for accuracy.
1: Well, it gave me something to do, and they were probably impressed, I guess, with what I was doing. And they were wonderful parents in that they supported my my addiction to Baja California as a kid, and then on. And so, anytime there's an opportunity to go to Baja. Uh, Like even after I got my driver's license, my mom would want to come along and we'd go check out a mission or whatever, go to her beach. So so there's a lot of trips still with my folks after I turned 16. But, you know, my first trip was just a school friend and I when I was 16. That was just after the highway was completed. I had wanted as a kid to be able to drive the Baja highway. I mean the Baja dirt road, I'm sorry the whole thing before it got paved, before it got ruined, quote-unquote, in in my thinking. And unfortunately, the highway beat me to it. I I turned 16 in September of 73, but my first chance to drive it alone was not until the next April during spring break of 74. And uh, that's when I happened to meet Louisa Porter, who was the uh, publisher of the Baja California Bulletin magazine. And um, we met each other at Catafina, and that's where our relationship began. And she, she said that she wanted to have a road guide in a special edition of her magazine and wanted to know if she could use mine that I had produced, you know, the previous year in 73. And I said, well, it's, you know, it doesn't show the new highway completed. It shows it under construction. But uh, my dad heard about this, and he said, well, heck, we need to take a trip down to uh, the tip so you have all the information for the whole new highway so you can do that for, for Louisa Porter's magazine. And so in the summer of 74, this is a couple of months after I met her at Catavina in April of 74, my folks did a trip all the way to Cabo. We came back up through Todos Santos, which wasn't paved yet. And uh, then over to L.A. Bay uh, from the Highway 1, which also wasn't paved yet. Just a mile or so from the highway was paved to make it look like it was all paved. But once you went over that hill, it was all unpaved until many years later. <laughs> so we did all that, and plus I'd done other trips uh, throughout Baja. I to Mike Sky Ranch, went down there for this first SCORE Baja uh, off-road race, which was called the Baja Internacional, uh, what most people call the Baja 500. Uh, when SCORE ran it, it was called the Internacional. And uh, so I'd had a lot of other dirt roads besides the main road uh, to put into the guidebook uh, to the, this new uh, 1970 is uh, it was uh, Christmas of '74, New Year's '75. Was this uh, Baja California Bulletin uh, version of my guidebook? Where is that?
0: It's right here in front ah, of me, hiding under this map. map.
1: So that's that's that one there, and that's my mom with the fish there on the cover <laughs> with a Dorado. Yeah, we special, special that, edition featuring out of Calito uh, south of Laredo. And the man there holding the Dorado for her is Ramon Viale, Vialejo, I believe his last name was. And uh, his family developed Juncalito as it is still today and quite a little community down there now. A lot of stories. I'm sorry, I go off on a tangent here.
0: <laughs> no, they're they're really great. And to have that firsthand experience of driving driving the highway in 66, driving the old road in 66.
1: Look what's on the cover of my 1974-75 guidebook. See yeah. That?
0: Well, why don't you tell me about what that is there on well, your thumb? Well,
1: that's Mission. I just kind of realized it to myself. That's Mission San Ignacio. Of course. And what's on the cover of my mission book? Mission, mission San Ignacio.
0: <laughs> what's the proper name for that? It's a rather long one, isn't it?
1: Well, it's Mission, uh, uh, let's see, what we call it, Nuestro Señor... Uh, San Ignacio de Caracaman. Yeah. It's a Cochimí word, and I don't speak Cochimí, so... <laughs> right, and I, I don't remember
0: Cochimí very well. <laughs> hey, so getting back to the, the, the trip that you took, the seminal trip that you took, sitting in between your mom and dad in the, yeah. in the Wagoneer, and they were probably m- maybe just humoring you, trying to keep you quiet in those days when you, <laughs> didn't, when you didn't have satellite radio or uh, CD players or whatever we have, all the modern distractions now of... A, tablets, and everything in the right. car. Yeah. And so you're reading the the Lower California Guidebook. Mm-hmm. And that had first come out in the 40s, correct?
1: You no, know, it came out in the 50s. 50s. Uh, 56 was the first edition. I
0: thought it was yeah. 48. So it came out in 56. 56 and then it was rapidly and it had updated. And a 58
1: second edition, and a 62 third edition, and a 67 fourth edition. And then it had a printing in 1970. And that was the last. Because now the highway was... After that, the highway was finished. And then... Uh, Walt's, uh, I'm sorry, Howard co coworker, uh, Walt, another coworker, uh, Walt Wheelock, who had the La Siesta Press of several small books about Baja. He took it upon himself, with Howard's blessing, to revise it with the new highways in Baja that had taken place. So in 1975, created the Baja California Guidebook.
0: Gotcha. So that that trip that you took with your parents, can can you even begin to break down that that experience? You're on dirt. Tell me which sections were paved. We'll start okay, there.
1: You're not talking about the 73 trip
0: now. No, no, no. We're talking about the 66 trip.
1: Ah, okay, the 66 trip. The pavement ended about— the gleam in his
0: eyes. The gleam in his eyes. Ah, is, the 66. Uh, what,
1: a, what, a, what a great way to get your kid into uh, Baja, a dose of Baja fever. Uh, the, the trip, uh, the pavement ended about, uh, I think it's 86 miles south of Ensenada, just a few miles before coming to the town of Colonette. It had ended there for several years, uh, I think around 1951. And then uh, this was 1966, still ended there. And it was a long, straight, uh, graded dirt road ready for paving, but never got paved, at least for many years. That went straight down to past San Cantin, And the grading kind of faded out as you got close to El Rosario. Um and then the old, original, basically a, a two-track through the Baja Desert uh, all the way until you got to San Ignacio. And then you got basically like a graded road again of sorts to go to Santa Rosalia that the, uh, the El Boleo uh, copper mine company had built probably in the 40s or 30s. And there's those steep switchbacks that went down the mountain, the Cuesta del Infierno, um, the Grade to Hell, down to the sea level. There's two sets of them, as you know, it still is today as pay, but a different route slightly. And then in, in uh, Santa Rosalia to Muleje was a pretty smooth graded road, probably from the, there again, from the Baleo Company. And then past Muleje, it was a hand-built road along the cliffs along Conception Bay, Bahia Concepcion, and uh, then back to kind of a typical two-track desert road, And the route went through San Jose and San Miguel de Comandu, not through Loretto. Loretto is kind of a dead end. Uh, You could get on south if you went up to San Javier Mission, uh, because in the 1950s they built that road. And then from San Javier, get out to the the road to La Paz. But we went through Comandu and then hit that long, long, straight graded road uh, coming north from La Paz. It's one of the longest straight sections of graded road, I think, in the world. Maybe the the second longest. I think I read that somewhere, if it's true or not. Who knows? And pavement actually didn't happen until we got, uh, I think it was around where the town of Santa Rita is, uh, around 100 miles from La Paz. Then all of a sudden, we got Blacktop. And uh, paved to La Paz. And then going south of La Paz, the pavement ran just for 10 miles and then ended. And construction was kind of active there. Going south through El Triunfo, San Antonio, and ended around San Bartolo before you got to the coast at uh, uh, Buenos Aires, uh, Buena Vista, I'm sorry, Buena Vista, Las Palmas, what today we call Los Buriles. And then it was basically a two track dirt road from there all the way to Cabo San Lucas. It's the Jeep Road. Two track, one lane wide. Can you imagine that? <laughs> to Cabo San Lucas was just a dirt track like that. And it was just a fishing village at Cabo San Lucas with so a cannery.
0: Amazing, yep. truly amazing. Well, uh, that that trip in in '66, if I recall, your parents took a ferry to Guaymas to get back.
1: Well, actually, the '66 trip with a ferry went to Mazatlan, and uh, because after we got to Cabo, we came back up. Through Todos Santos, because I made a loop that way you could see both sides of the peninsula. There again, all dirt roads. And from Todos Santos back to La Paz was a graded two-lane-wide dirt road until we hit that paving that came 10 miles south of La Paz. And then from La Paz, the ferry was only about a year old. I think at 64 or 65 it started, and we took that ferry over to Mazatlan. is the only route it took, and then drove up the Mexican mainland side to get back home on a paved road. Now, the, the, the ferry from Santa Rosalia to Guaymas, that began in 72 when the pavement had reached north from La Paz to Santa Rosalia. And when we did the trip in 73 when the highway was under construction, we went down to go to Loretto, basically do some fishing. And then, of course, instead of taking the highway back home as originally planned, with so many dirt, dusty miles, we decided to take the ferry from, uh, from Santa Rosalia across to Guaymas so we could come home on a paved road. A bit more relaxing, less dusty. Yeah. Longer, but not longer. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it, I'm trying to put myself in your, your dad's shoes saying, well, David, you've got this opportunity to illustrate a uh, a book. You better find out, you know, all we better go all the way down now that the road's been built. And touch on this again and, and kind of open it up for me. You felt that it had been ruined. Your Baja <laughs> mountain, your the Iger, the you know the 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 summit that you were climbing
1: had an had an elevator now. <laughs> yeah, it'd been ruined. <laughs> yeah, I guess as a kid, you know, or someone, I wanted to drive the original dirt road uh, before I turn when I turned sixteen to be able to drive it because you know I did with my folks as a passenger, and once I could drive it. You know, like, like being in the Baja 1000, I wanted to drive the, the route. And so, yeah, it was paid bef- before, I could, uh, before I could drive, but I was 16 years old. And um, that trip, uh, we went uh, uh, it was a spring break for a week, so we decided to make a big loop trip out of it. I decided, I planned it, of course. <laughs> and so we went down as far as um, uh, Kalanoa Canyon turn off and came back north through Gonzaga Bay and San Felipe, made a loop trip that, that trip. Um, yeah, so I had that original road, the old, before Highway 5, the road to Gonzaga Bay was very rough, probably rumored to be the worst road in Baja California, so I did drive that, so that was kind of a neat to experience, and I had been over that road of my folks on our first trip in 1965, so from San Felipe South to Bay of San Luis Gonzaga, and that was like low range, four-wheel drive, crawling up and down these steep, rutted out uh, volcanic ridges. Between Puerto Citos and El Werfenito was the, the, the steepest, roughest part. And that took several hours just to do that, you know, 20-mile section of dirt road.
0: Well, I just read recently in uh, somebody's reports from their childhood of uh, bumming around the, the east side of the Baja Peninsula in the 60s that uh, it's Trace Virgins, and uh, I think his dad called it the Five Hookers. It was, <laughs> it was that that rough.
1: Yeah, I've heard, I've heard uh, Trace Maria's, uh, the sisters, uh, probably different terms. I always consider there to be more than three, though. It seemed to be five or six, maybe. In, in Cliff Cross's guidebook, he does an ex- excellent map of the grades. Let me flip that open while we're talking because he did such a good job of illustrating how bad it was there south of uh, Puerto Citos and... Uh, making a quite a deal about caution this is a road that should be done with a high traction there we go let's see only traction vehicles and trucks should travel south of puerto citos and he has six grades listed here as either rocky steep rough highest one shrine at the top deep cut and that's all between puerto citos there we go and uh, san luis gonzaga so he, he illustrated it properly of his map uh, from 1970.
0: You spent a lot of time on that part of the peninsula. Your family seemed to spend a lot of time we there. We like the
1: Gulf. I mean, I like it, and my folks like to think better because uh, we thought we thought the fishing was better, although we had great fishing on the Pacific side too, probably because it was warmer. We just love warm weather, uh, desert, and a lot of times it's too hot for people, but... Uh, not for us. I mean, heat was just an attraction, and, and the water being warmer in the summertime, so you didn't get that, <gasps> when you stepped into it, it was like walking into a bathtub. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But uh, we, the beach, the sand beach, is like the beach by Alfonsinas, we camped there, and of course the beach is south of San Felipe. We used to camp, of course, at Nuevo Mazatlan. Um, originally, it was called Agua de Chale, and... The uh, founder of Nuevo Mazalana, a man named Luis Castellanos Moreno, uh, just embellished any, anybody who came there. He, uh, he built cabañas, uh, or cabanas, however it's called, out of ocotillos and, and cardboard for people to have a shady place to camp on his beach, and then eventually took branches of a, a salt pine tree in the arroyo near his house, a tamarisk tree, and stuck those in rows and watered them from his well, the well called Agua de Chale, and grew the forest that you can still see to this day that's at Nueva Masatlán, And that he was so proud of that. And uh, Luis was there from, gee, early 60s to or late 70s, I'd say. It was the last time I'd seen him there, before the camp had new owners, a fellow by the name of Javier, uh, and his family, I believe, uh, run it since then. And they made it into really still keeping it a campground, which is unusual because most of the campos south of San Felipe are private home developments and not really campgrounds, not really campos. So Luis, uh, Luis's Campo Nuevo Mazalan still lives today uh, as uh, Nuevo Mazalan with uh, tree camping, big beach, and now they have little uh, casitas that you can stay in there too. I saw on their webpage.
0: And again, your family. Um spent some time there, and then you, in your
1: adult life, you,
0: you like Shell Island.
1: Yeah, so we uh, I used to go to the uh, north edge of Bahia Santa Maria, a shallow bay, which is just north of Nueva Masalan. I would park at low tide and walk across the lagoon inlet that's there to this long barrier island beach that stretched forever and ever all the way to Persebu, or they called it Laguna Persebu, which is on the other end. And we'd go along and collect seashells and just admire the the pristine beach of northern people on it. It was like, wow, this is great. How can I camp here? And it actually took me, uh, well, gee, what was it? A couple years before I discovered a route to get onto the island at low tides. There's uh, salt marshes and brush, and you really couldn't see anything as definite as a road. And you want to be careful where you drive there because the mud can become quicksand and take you away if you don't have the right spot to go to. So finally found a route because I saw someone camping there, and I walked across the lagoon and asked them, how did you get out here? And uh, the, the secret was out. So that was in 1978, and I've been camping there almost exclusively since then rather than at Nueva Masatlan or another campo. But occasionally the high tide is so great that I don't risk driving into the water to get to the island. And so I still camp at Nuevo Masalan.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, no campground's worth the price of a pickup truck. (laughs)
1: That's it.
0: Uh, We're going to take a quick break uh, right now to catch in a word from Baja Bound, our sponsor, your friend and mine, Baja Bound. We'll be right back with David Keir on Slow Baja. Here at Slow Baja, we can't wait to drive our old Land Cruiser south of the border. And when we go, we'll be going with Baja Bound Insurance. Their website's fast and easy to use. Check them out at BajaBound.com. That's BajaBound.com, serving Mexico travelers since 1994. Big thanks to my new sponsor, Nomad Wheels. They stepped up and sponsored the Slow Baja Safari Class at the Nora Mexican 1000. And I don't know if you've seen the pictures, but Slow Baja is running a set of 501 convoys in utility gray, and they look pretty damn sharp. They were a little shiny. I will admit that they were a little shiny when uh, I got them installed at Basil's Garage just before the Nora Mexican 1000. But after, I don't know, 3,800 miles of Baja dirt, they look perfect. They really do. Nomad wheels.com. that's right check them out reflecting a minimalist approach to off-road travel nomadwheels.com well we're back with david keir talking about the 50th anniversary of the completion of the trans-peninsular highway and david's referring to a uh, rather large map on his wall looking wistfully over at the, the highway let's talk about the uh, the president, uh, the, the administration that finally got this mo- monumental task. That's handled. a good
1: story, yeah. the uh, w- When he was running for president, um, he drove the old Baja road, well, the road that was at the time the only Baja road, and asked the people of Baja, California, what did they want from his new administration if he got elected? And they all said, build us a road. And so he kept his promise. How about that for a politician? And uh <laughs> I let's see, seventy so he was in office from seventy to seventy six or whenever the range is there. They run they have six year terms in Mexico. And uh by golly, he got the road completed. I mean things were under going underway, but he really was the big push to get the highway finished finally. And of course, um uh in at uh, near Guerrero Negro at the twenty eighth parallel, which is the dividing line between northern and southern Baja, California. The north has been a state for many years, and the south was still a federal territory. Um, This giant eagle, 135, 140 feet tall, stylized eagle was built as a uh, monument to the completion of the highway. And um, there, uh, hundreds of people uh, uh, gathered uh, to hear... Uh, and see President Echeverria inaugurate the highway. So it was officially opened on December 1st,
0: 1973. And did, uh, did the predicted hordes of people come when the highway was built?
1: I think they did because there was a lot of uh, photographic proof of streams of motorhomes and campers and trailers heading down. And uh, it overwhelmed, uh, obviously, the gas stations and the services that weren't quite in place yet. Um, as you may be uh, aware of, the government built what they called paradors every so often along the, the most desolate part of the peninsula where there was no infrastructure yet. So the first parador was located south of San Quentin, uh right near where today's uh, Hotel Mission Santa Maria and Cielito Lindo's driveway are. Uh, along where the old highway went through there. And uh, that, that was the first parador, and it was a gas station, a rest stop, a cafeteria, and a trailer park nearby, plus the hotel uh, was an El Presidente at the time, before it became a La Pinta, and then a Desert Inn, and then now it's the um, uh, Mission hotels, Mission Santa Maria at this place, because the bay is called Santa Maria Bay. The next parador door was at Catavina, which wasn't even there before the highway was built. Catavina was the name of a, uh, an abandoned rancho near the more uh, the active ranches of San Luis and Rancho Santa Inez, which is a very popular place because the Baja 1000 in the old days used it as a checkpoint, and so Catavina was kind of born from the highways construction. And there was the hotel, a trailer park. Uh, the rest stop, a cafeteria. And the next parador was at what they called Parador Punta Prieta. And today that is the junction with the highway to Bahia de Los Angeles. And that was the only parador without a hotel. And had the other, though, had the cafeteria, gas station, uh, trailer park. The next parador was at the Eagle Monument, which is called Parador Parallel. A parallelo, <laughs> uh, twenty eighth parallel, near Guerrero Negro, and there was the hotel, trailer park, gas station, and then the final and last parador was at San Ignacio. They, I guess, they felt the town hadn't grown enough yet to service the horde. So the modern gas station, cafeteria, and then in at the oasis, the hotel was uh, located across the river, and then uh, there was a couple of minor uh, mini paradors, and one was at San Agustin which is, of course, between El Rosario and Catavina, And I think one was at uh, what they call today Nuevo Rosarito, at least a gas station, was there. Neither one are in, in existence any longer.
0: And th- was that the El Presidente line that had the hotels? The hotels were all called El Presidente. In yeah, buildings? they were all the
1: El Presidente chain hotels. And in, I, I think, the 1980s or early 90s, they became the... Uh, uh, La Pinta hotels, so a different, a different hotel chain uh, took it over. And then they became the Desert Inn hotels. And a couple of them are still called Desert Inns, I think. And uh, then in the, in the two in the north, that uh, the San Quintin one and the Catavina one are called Hotels Mission, Mission Santa Maria, and Mission Catavina. Uh, and then the other ones, uh, you know, the halfway in at the at, uh, Eagle Monument. And the one down in the well, there was was an El Presidente in Loretto. It was it used. To, it used to be the Playa, I think the Playas Loretto, and I'm not too sure what it is now. It was a La Pinta also. So yeah, the hotels went through different ownerships and name changes.
0: Yeah, but you know, thinking about that, those were built for you know to service that that traffic on the highway in 1974, mm-hmm. 1973. Right. Pretty nice hotels.
1: Yeah, yeah. They well, they expected you know the, the Americanos had you know lots of money and they'll come down and they'll spend the money and and I think they were overwhelmed, surprised at how many came down with campers and trailers and not using the hotels but needing campgrounds. They did have a lot of uh, campgrounds, but I think that was a bigger uh, popularity was camping. But uh, and that uh, how how uh, frugal many Americans were, maybe that more frugal than they expected, perhaps.
0: Yeah, I think it was Henry Manny from Road & Track magazine did a, an article about uh, going to um, the bottom of Baja in an RV and saying basically, you know, you can you don't need to stay at a hotel. You can do it in your RV. And and RVs obviously were on the rise. That was a great period for RV expansion. All right. And what better bucket list than Baja? Mm-hmm. True. Um, I didn't catch it earlier. I was thinking about this when you were, you were describing the road, and I believe it was in— um, in Bahia Concepcion, is that the the road that's often you see in the 1960s AAA guidebook, where the road is right on the edge of the bay? Yeah, There's exactly. almost no there's almost no altitude or elevation of the the roadway from the waterway.
1: Right. the 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 the, the mountain comes right to the water in a lot of Bahia Concepcion, uh, with little exceptions. So it was like hand built. And as I heard a story that the uh, prisoners at the uh, old, the the former prison in Muley were the labor force behind that uh, building and gave them something to do, I guess you'd say. And that was a hand built road along the cliffs there, and that was obviously the original Highway One before uh, road construction came through there between nineteen seventy and seventy three.
0: And as we ping pong and you say hand hand built road, I think of the road and uh, um, Highway Five where. where for many, many years, one family sort of took it upon themselves to uh, maintain that road. The,
1: on high, uh, on the, the road south of Puerto Sitos to Gonzaga Bay, uh, there was a man. Uh, I'd actually never seen him working, but his wheelbarrow <laughs> and shovel were parked with a donation can. So, uh, um. yeah, it was around, I think, in the area today is called Cinco Islas, Five Islands, Uh between there and like Oki's Oki's landing
0: yeah and so he would work that uh, or uh, have his his uh, paraphernalia there as if he were working that sure and and, and take donations
1: Yep. that's uh, it's a Baja lore or Baja legend but it do I, you, do, do what you can I, I gotta I I've I've actually seen in one of my guidebooks is a photo I think in Cliff Cross's book is a photo of him with his wheelbarrow and I can say I only saw the wheelbarrow <laughs> maybe it was siesta time. Yeah,
0: could have been, could have been. Okay, well, so
1: um, high hopes. You you thought that they were going to destroy your your uh, your my ability to drive to down the Baja on a dirt road. Yeah,
0: and so you had planned for a dirt road bomber as your first car, as I understand, or at least your parents had said. David's probably going to Baja. We should get him a Baja capable first car. Can we talk about that a little bit? That seems absolutely (laughs) nuts in this era of uh, helicoptering and snow plowing parents trying to keep their children absolutely safe and everything that's a hazard out of their way. But tell me about your first car, David.
1: They totally trusted me in Mexico. They felt that, you know, I knew so much about Mexico uh, more than them, anyway, because of my uh, studying the peninsula and logging the roads and all that. They had no worries at all about my safety or my abilities down there. And they were able to convince the other boys' parents that went with me when I was 16. And the next boy, when I was 17, who happened to be a 16-year-old, a year younger than me, on that second trip, the second uh, spring break in 75. No, they, they uh, totally uh, trusted me. Uh, my first vehicle was a myers Manx bodied. Dune buggy, Volkswagen powered dune buggy with a roof rack on it. And it actually had side curtains that could be added or removed depending on the weather and the amount of dust I wanted to eat. And so uh, all my camping gear could go on top of it. And we intended really to trailer that down behind the station wagon. So we had an off road vehicle uh, where the station wagon couldn't go now that my dad didn't have a Jeep or a, a four wheel drive uh, wagon any longer. And when I became sick, and I had driven that, obviously. It was probably the car I learned how to drive in. And uh, when I was 16, that just became my vehicle to drive to school in and do these Baja trips in with their blessing. And so that was my first uh, car from uh, from that 73 when I turned 16 to uh, mid-75 when uh, my father, bless his heart, bought me a Jeep. And uh, so I was, you know, extremely lucky, uh, lucky kid.
0: Do you remember anything about the acquisition of that? That It was a myers Manx, wasn't it?
1: I, you know, I, I'm not or positive. A, it was a, a my- brand name, myers made It was a myers Manx style. Yeah, it was a Manx style. Fiberglass. Yeah, it was an orange-red fiberglass. Well, my pictures, you can see the pictures of me with it on one of my trips, I think, when I was 15 yeah, or and 16. Yeah, it, it
0: almost looks like it's enclosed. So there's a roof rack and, right. as you said, side curtains, mm-hmm. and it, it was pretty deluxe for a...
1: For a buggy, <laughs> it had a, yeah it had a roll cage in it and it had steering brakes because it actually was used in an off road race. Uh, the The former owner told us it was in the rough Brago Rough One Hundred uh, race that was in the desert of uh, East San Diego County, and I guess that's what the turning brakes were for. Of course, you know that gives you the added uh, traction of uh, by you breaking up a loose spinning tire. It transfer it's like pause traction, but manually. <laughs> manually operated pause traction if you get if your tire spins trying to get up a steep grade. And I climbed those steep Gonzaga Bay grades. Obviously not with a four wheel drive, but because the Dune Buggy was light, had large tires on the back, and uh, it was easy to do in a Dune buggy, I had no problem climbing those four wheel drive grades in that buggy.
0: So as a Dune buggy owner driver, did you have an affinity for um... What uh, Bruce Myers had done in setting the fastest time, you know, from La Paz back to Tijuana and and that, all
1: of that hoopla that led to the first off road race in '67. You know, I'm I'm trying to think if that was really imprinted in my mind too heavily. I mean, I probably was aware of it. Uh, But off road racing, hmm, it's hard to say because I did go to the first Baja 1000 to watch uh, with my dad when I was, I guess I was 16. That was November of '73. So I was aware of the racers and like, you know, Mickey Thompson camped by us because he wasn't in that race, but he, he went down to uh, to watch it. I think he tried to get into it and for some reason his truck had some issue because he had the race truck on his trailer. So Mickey Thompson was there. I imagine Danny uh, Thompson was with him there. I asked Danny about, do you remember that 73 race camping, you know, past Ojos Negros and he didn't quite recall it. It was a long time ago. And uh, it was just a a fun thing for sure. And, you know, I didn't get into racing more until I was offered a chance to work a pit. And that was probably in the 78 uh, Baja 500 or Baja Internacional when we're camping next to a pit team. And he said, hey, would you like to hold a fire extinguisher for us? And I said, sure, because I looked like I wasn't doing much, I guess. And uh, I became involved with a group called the Los Campeones Racing Team out of Vista, North north San Diego County. And from there, I became a co driver in the Baja 1000 and a pit captain for several races uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah,
0: I remember seeing a picture of you in a uh, Datsun 510 or something.
1: Yeah, they, that was a class. But then I was class six, which was production two wheel drive sedans and uh, Datsun, Sobs, you know, whatever kind of sedan you had, you know, roll caged out, big tires, but pretty much looked like a passenger car. And that was the class I was in.
0: Yeah, and getting back to that 73 race, um, that was the last, well, that was the one-year sort of independent effort by the Mexican government. Can you talk about your experiences there? You had a, uh, a Super 8 movie camera.
1: Yeah, right. A lot of people uh, watch that. I've noticed on YouTube. It's, it's on there, and a link to it is on my VivaBaja.com website. Uh, you can see in the in the media section that uh, it's like three minutes long, I think. you had a Super 8 projector. I think my brother-in-law loaned it to me. And went down there with my dad and I. We we camped just after the pavement ended uh, about uh, five miles or so east from Ojos Negros. Because the race that year went from Ensenada to San Felipe and then south. And uh, we parked just after the, the pavement ended. And there's some big rocks. And you can still see them today. Oh, there, 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 there's where I was. We parked and camped on top of the rocks. and uh, Or camped and sat on top of the rocks. That morning, cars from all over Ensenada or wherever came, and it was quite a little city there uh, for this, to watch the race. And I did that uh, videotape, that uh, Super 8 movie, added some, some era-style music to it. So it sounds like you're watching on any Sunday or something fun from the, from the 60s or 70s. And uh, that was great. Yeah,
0: no, I've watched it a few times.
1: Oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I'll I'll admit to uh, running your numbers up, uh, getting some distractions in. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, good stuff. Thank you. Good stuff. So uh, Pete Springer, Slobaha alum Pete Springer and Bill Sanders uh, won their class in a 1973- um, Toyota Land Cruiser. Toyota Land Cruiser that had been converted to Propane. Propane so I, must have had a massive tank behind the the
1: feet yeah there uh four-wheeler magazine uh it was their was their you know company truck if you want to call it that and bill sanders was the publisher editor four-wheeler magazine and uh, pete was just a great mechanic all-around guy and it was so funny because i ran i never met pete in person but i i over through the internet through facebook i started associating with them and talking with them and he couldn't believe that I remembered was a propane powered Toyota, and I, I I said, "Yeah, you were in that propane powered Toyota, won the won the class in '73." And he was kind of like, "Well, well, you knew that, yeah." <laughs> and it turns out that Pete and my brother in law went to school together. Amazing, <laughs> amazing.
0: Well, I, you know what? Um, if you haven't listened to that uh, interview with Pete Springer, um, Pete and Bill were friends. Pete was a mechanic and a welder, and he lived in a camper behind his dad's shop. And I think he said he made 250 an hour in those days, and he wasn't quite worth that. But um, he had this opportunity because Bill Sanders had the the vehicle which they had converted to propane because of the fuel shortage and the high price of gasoline and the gas-guzzling nature of a uh, Toyota Land Cruiser, um, which gets about 10 miles to the gallon, folks. Um, they converted this thing to propane, and then they said, "Well, what are we going to do with it now? We've done our articles on yes this is popular this is possible we've we've done the series of articles so uh Bill was able to acquire the the Land Cruiser from Toyota for the a grand fee of $1 and Pete somehow uh received $300 and had 1 month to assemble the uh class winning vehicle so wow he had all the <laughs> all the vendors that he could get free stuff from and and schlepped the truck around to uh to various uh, manufacturers in in Southern California to get the the free goods, the advertisers of the magazine, and then he did the assembly and did the testing. And you know, he said they just basically went went slow enough not to break it and fast yeah. enough that uh, they won.
1: Right. Well, that's it was it's a great story, and I, I remember remember well. I was a I was a, a subscriber to Four Wheeler magazine throughout most of my life. I think for many many years.
0: Well let's get back to the subject at hand so from that very first uh trip on the paved highway where it wasn't quite all paved how did how did Baja evolve for you and your family again fifty going back to fifty years ago nineteen seventy three December of seventy three the hoopla
1: well you get when you see the when you see the peninsula and you, you see different places that you that you uh camped at or went to or fished at you, you kind of find out places you'd want to go back to again and I suppose the area south of Loretto was a biggie for my folks as we've been there a couple times. Um, Mission San Javier, my mother loves seeing. Of course, I dug it too. So I've been there several times back before there was any new road or, or paved road to it. Um, and uh, Bahia de Los Angeles, Gonzaga Bay. Uh, you know, it's you just go back. But mostly, you know, south of San Felipe. Uh, I... When my dad passed away, the fishing gene didn't quite hook with me as much as it was hooked to him. I enjoyed fishing with him and, and my mom, and it just kind of didn't really kind of carry it on with me. Me, was just off-road driving, off-road camping, uh, writing books, writing maps, uh, and absorbing and transmitting what I absorbed so others could try uh, help others enjoy or discover places that... They could explore more because no matter how detailed I can give a map or show a map or write about, when you go, it doesn't spoil it because you go, you see more things. You see different things. The things I saw will look different to you and you'll experience different things. And I can't possibly give you the amount of interesting places and events uh, in in any kind of book or wording or, or, or podcast. You've got to go yourself See what I've been to if you want, but use it as a guide to go beyond where I've been and go deep and learn about the people and the places and the food and the culture and the history. And I'm just teasing you of whatever I write. I'm not spoiling it at all, I promise you.
0: <laughs> not spoiling
1: it at all for
0: me, that's for sure. Um, Cliff Cross, in his many, many uh, books, his guides, I think uh, the one that I recently uh, dove down the rabbit hole on was the 1974 that has information about the highway, and he said it can be driven in 24 hours, so from top to bottom, and I still think that's kind of an accurate, you know, yeah, it can be. I don't know if I'd recommend driving it, but I always say it can take three days if you're driving kind of, you know, all day um, from top to bottom. What what do you say about the, the distance and, and what's your now default as you've spent well over 50 years driving up and down the peninsula? So let's get into that and we'll wrap things up.
1: You, you, you can definitely drive it in three days and probably we can drive it in less than three days. My question would be why and what's, what's the hurry to get to the end of Baja? Why not enjoy what's in between the two, the top and the bottom? Cabo San Lucas is uh, an interesting, beautiful, busy city. And I'm more of a country guy. I like to get away from cities, so that's not my attraction. So I say, hey, don't be in such a hurry to get to the end of Baja because you might pass everything else that is Baja. And that's why you should take your time, should enjoy it, or at least spend one leg of your trip. If you're going to Cabo because you rented a condo there or whatever, Use either going down or coming back as a way to see the peninsula and go off these side trips. Look at these towns, look at these villages, and you just might be surprised at what you come across. Go out to Bahia Asuncion and let Sherry Bondi show you what her town has to offer. It's just an amazing place with fishing, fossils, and fantastic people. You go to Bahia de Los Angeles and you'll experience this most fascinating museum that has all the artifacts of the area, the natural history. And see the natural history. Go out and explore the mission nearby San Borja. See the Las Flores silver and gold mine center where the railroad engine that's now in the town park used to sit. And you can follow those railroad tracks as they head south into the desert to where a cable tram line brought gold and silver ore down from the top of the mountain. It's all amazing. Everything you see down there has a fascinating story to tell and learn about. And I can't get enough of it. I can't, I can't ever stop wanting to go to Baja, even though my body may prevent me from going to Baja.
0: So, David, from your personal um, affinity for seeing the world in a very linear manner and creating your own maps from the time you were a kid following the, the, the G&G in the Lower California Guidebook when you were sitting in between your parents on the front bench seat of the old, uh, Wagoneer to drawing your own hand, um, handmade maps and, and your addendum to what was happening. So people would have accurate up to date information. And then seeing your own, uh, maps being published in, in a, uh, a guide. It's all very heady stuff for a, a youngster. And, um, Fast forward to uh, your guidebook that you you put together for Baja Bound that's not out yet, and then the stellar work you did um, for Benchmark on their Baja California Road and Recreation Atlas that just had the second uh, edition come out. Can you tell me a little bit about this brand-new Benchmark and what people need to know about
1: how to read a map? (laughs) Open it up. It won't do any good sitting somewhere in a bookshelf. you got to have it with you. you got to have it open. And uh, before your trip, go over your route. Look at what's there. See the things. The benchmark, uh, Baja California Road and Recreation Atlas, has historical sites listed. It even has the route of the El Camino Real from Loreto north to El Rosario plotted on there if you want to do a little hiking or see where it crosses the highway. On my website, it actually has a Page with the kilometer markers where the El Camino Real crosses or joins with Highway 1 or other roads in Baja. So, yeah, get get a bit of history. Um, obviously, I'm fixated on the missions, the El Camino Real, but also on old mines too. And much of that is shown in the uh, Baja California Road and Recreation Atlas. So use that. Use it as a plotting tool. And, yes, the second edition just came out. It was... Uh, in an answer to people who saw little changes or little things they wanted to add to it or things that was missing. For instance, uh, the Almanac came out, I mean, the Almanac, I'm sorry. The Baja Atlas came out, uh, in, uh, it was May of 2021. Well, in April of 2021 Coco moved his corner and I was able to get that edit into them before the book went to print. And so the new Cocos Corner was on the Baja Benchmark Atlas before anyone else had known it, because that was right like that next month. And some people said, hey, the original Cocos Corner is, no longer, it, it is missing from it. They should show that too. It's a historical site. And, of course, that's a great idea. So guess what? The second edition has the original Cocos Corner on there as well as the new Cocos Corner.
0: It, it really is amazing to me how um, open um, benchmark is to improvement and to change and to add more information in as long as they can accurately um, vet
1: it. They're, they're, they're a great group of people that, that they're very open to input and receptive. And um, yeah, anything that uh, they can help make the book better, they're interested in having done They're They were very receptive of all my suggestions and they took most of them to heart and did it. And I was very jazzed that they mentioned me in the book and I'm happy to help them meantime, in the future.
0: Well, David, I think we're going to leave it right there. Where's the best place for people to find what you're doing, your websites, your social media?
1: Sure. Uh, VivaBaja.com is my website. And there are links to my two Facebook groups. I've got a a Viva Baja Facebook group to discuss that webpage or just to chat about camping and off-roading and I also have a Baja missions Facebook group uh, which is even larger discusses historical locations in Baja California so not just the missions but also the mines, the El Camino Real, the petroglyphs and pictographs fossils anything historic.
0: Yeah well I enjoyed our conversation about uh your work on the missions in your book, you said thirteenth uh, printing in that book.
1: Yeah, about that. That's amazing. I just do not a whole lot at a time because I'm, I'm self-published. So, but when my uh, my distributor, which is Sunbelt Books down in Chula Vista, says they need more and they have to, they feed Amazon my book. Uh, I print more for them, but I sell them directly myself. And I'll sign the copies if you buy them from me at vivabaja.com, and uh, uh, otherwise get them from Sunbelt or get them from any place that you. Buy your book set. They'll get them for you. All
0: right. We're going to leave it right there. David, thanks for uh, telling us some stories about the construction of the Trans-Peninsular Highway and recounting your personal memories of driving it before its completion and after its completion and sharing some stories about your dad and the family 73-family wagon, the air shocks, and the second second gas tank. I like the way your dad thought.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a great joy talking with you today. All right. We did it, buddy.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that show with David Kier. He is such a wealth of information. He's a guy who really, really enjoys sharing it too. So if you if you follow him on social media or you go to uh he's got a lot of stuff there, and he's very happy to tell you all about it. So hit him up. Um, David's a good guy. He's my go-to guy, as I said, for all the obscure road stuff, route stuff. Uh, just talked to him about my slow Baja trip for February, and he helped me out with some stuff on the east side of the peninsula. Um if you like what I'm doing, if you like these conversations, getting to meet people where they are, drop a taco in the tank. If you've still got tacos jingling around in your pocket this time of year, drop one in the tank. It really does help me keep the show going. And it's so important, um, doing this thing, I don't know how you say it in Espanol, but I am doing this thing on a shoestring. So your your donations of support really, really do help. And if you don't have any tacos, I get it. <laughs> I usually don't either. So um, if you got a, a second, do me a solid and drop a five-star review on Spotify or Apple or share the show with a friend. The Spotify year-end rap told me that 71% of my listeners came this year. Somebody sent them a link to the show. That's amazing to me. After three years, 130 shows that uh, somebody sends a link out and somebody else new listens to the show and Spotify tracks that and then tells me about it at the end of the year blows my mind so hey you know you've got friends who love Baja they don't they might not even know that I do a show so share Slow Baja with them all right um and share some Slow Baja stuff with them I've got some cool stuff in the shop that uh, canvas deluxe canvas shopping bag is really great I just took one to New York with me uh this past weekend super super handy zippered top zippered security pocket inside it'll go to the beach it's pretty big too pretty big um got some hats over there got some t-shirts uh patches stickers of course so share a little slow baja joy with one of your slow baja friends and to sum things up you know mary mcgee she had a birthday this week off-road hall of famer that's right she had a friend steve mcqueen who loved the desert and implored mary to go riding with her out there steve said baja's life Anything that happens before or after is just waiting. You know, people always ask me, what's the best modification that I've ever made to slow Baja? Without a doubt, it's my Man seats. You know, Toby at Shieldman USA could not be easier to work with. He recommended a Vario F for me and a Vario F XXL for my navigator, Ted. as Ted's kind of a big guy. And Toby was absolutely right. The seats are great and they fit both of us perfectly. And let me tell you, after driving around Baja for over a year on these seats, I could not be happier. Shieldman, slow Baja approved. Learn more and get yours at shieldman.com.